Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording here today in Amiskachima Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is a friend of the show and staff writer at the Progress Report, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy has written a new book and is a published author, which you should all buy and read, called Kennyism, Jason Kenny's Pursuit of Power, published by Dundurn Press. Jeremy, congratulations on writing a whole ass book and being a published author. And he is here to talk about not only the stuff in the book, but also about why you should buy it. So Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, all, all, all things considered, a bit uh, nervous about, uh, you know, the book uh, actually coming out and uh, sort of seeing how much attention it's going to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now you've written the book. Uh, that's 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 the easy part. Now you just have to go out and sell it, right? That's uh, That seems to be a bit harder. Early indications have been encouraging. Uh, for example, last week, it was the top-selling book in Edmonton, uh, according to the Alberta Book Publishers Association. So that's exciting. I, uh, I beat out um, uh, Naomi Klein's Doppelganger in uh, Jean Vaillant's uh, Fireweather. Um, both very good books, um, much better than mine. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I mean, that's just an Edmonton, right? And well, so. with the help of this podcast, you'll be going number one, every local city across, let's say the prairies, but I, I mean, it's a scary thing to write a book. You know, everyone gets to read it. Everyone gets to either say, golly gee, this guy's super fucking smart or he's, you know, a huge fucking idiot. But I, you know, I am obviously biased, you know, we work together, your colleagues, but the issue of Jason Kenny is. And, and Jason Kenney as a figure is someone who we have both written about kind of extensively over the years, given our kind of status as independent Alberta political journalists. And, you know, you have this book, I think, fills an important place. It does a lot of important work. And the reason why I think it's worth reading and the reason why I think it's like worth doing in the first place is, is something that you mentioned kind of early on in your book, which is... Uh, you know, you're up front with the reader that like, you know, I'm not, you're not writing some insider account. This isn't some kind of hack biography. You're, you're writing a, like a second draft of history, which again, useful. You want to kind of try and understand and explain the outsized impact that this very strange and powerful politician has, has in Alberta and across this country. But there's a line in there about his ghost continuing to haunt us that I think is true. Jason Kenney's ghost is going to continue to haunt us, even though he's dropped out of sight for the time being. You and I and my kids and everyone else in our lives are going to have to reckon with this guy's impact. And I think this book does a good job of reckoning with that. And so to that end, I've kind of asked you to come up with the top five worst things that Jason Kenney has done kind of in his life as a politician. I've come up with my own list. You've got your own list. We're going to go back and forth until the podcast is done. So, you know, do you feel that's a good preamble? And do you want to go first? Is there anything else? Actually, I should say, do you, is there anything else you want to say about the book before we get into all the terrible things that kind of Kenny has done? Um, yeah, no, well, I appreciate uh, that its message uh, resonated with you. Uh, I do think that 
not just in Alberta, but in Canada. I mean, we're living in the political reality that Jason Kenney helped shape. And um, that, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing now with uh, this uh, brutal assault on the rights of uh, transgender Albertans under the guise of parental rights, even though uh, the proposed policy uh, uh, constrains parental rights if they want their kids, if they want to support their children's uh, gender transition, um, is, I mean, very much uh, something that I would imagine has Jason Kenney's approval and is something he would have done. If he was still in power, I think he would have taken it to the next step, um, which is, I mean, that, right. I mean, he he made it harder for students to create and be in GSAs and that um, I mean, you can draw a direct line uh, from that to the policies in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, as I've written in mm-hmm. my newsletter. And um, Danielle Smith's uh, parental rights uh, policies, right? And um, I I think unlike Smith, who I don't think actually believes any of this stuff, she just is surrounded by people who do, who have put pressure on her to uh, bring forward this legislation, which in her mind is like a compromise between what Take Back Alberta wants, which is to just, uh, like, eliminate transgender people completely, and what most people want, which is for trans people to be supported and um, treated with dignity. Um, I, I, I think Kenny actually would believe believes in this, um, in this stuff because of his deeply held... Um, religious and political beliefs that um, there's a natural hierarchy and order to things that uh, can't be upset. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with Smith following in the footsteps of Kenny, right, is that like, you know, every shitbag fascist politician is kind of enabled by the fascist shitbag politician that came before it. And, you know, the slow degradation of rights, priority rights, of standard of living, of just like, you know, attacking marginalized and vulnerable people, you know, what Kenny did five years ago with GSAs is just like the next iteration of that is just going after trans kids. Right. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely like, would Kenny have done it? Absolutely. Does he even believe it? I mean, he's certainly much more of a religious fundamentalist than Daniel Smith is. And, you know, your book goes into all sorts of all sorts of weird shit that Kate Jason Kenny believes and was taught and his like his own kind of self-radicalization being a culture warrior for the pope and all that shit like uh, the one thing about Jason Kenny is that he is a a weirdo he is a strange person and that the fact that this fucking weirdo was so politically influential is bad and it sucks that we have to live in his shadow but here we are you know we get to kind of reckon with it and um, you know, examine how <laughs> we got to the place that we're in. And no, I, I like, I don't think this attack on trans kids from the UCP and take back Alberta, Daniels, what happens without Jason Kenney as premier first. 
what were uh, what were the like weirdest corners that you kind of went down kind of writing this book <laughs> well just kenny's conversion to catholicism um that was really weird he was baptized anglican uh his family um as so far as i could tell wasn't particularly religious um but he was sort of always enamored by the vatican um which i think uh is important uh as this sort of empty symbol of authority that you can sort of place um whatever sort of values you want in it of course the catholic church has its own teachings but i mean kenny is more catholic certainly than the current pope right um and um you know i when his former roommate um at saint michael's university uh school in victoria this sort of posh uh, uh prep school that his parents sent him to and uh, where he spent the first two years of high school. Um, what His former roommate uh, told me he remembers vividly, like Kenny getting up in the middle of the night to uh, actually go see the queen. It wasn't the Pope, although the Pope also visited later and he was super uh, hyped about that. But he woke up in the middle of the night to, to sort of, get a good spot to, to see the queen at the legislature in, in Victoria. Um, so this sort of, uh, crown fetishism, I, I, I thought is really weird. And then of course it comes full circle at the end of his, uh, political career when he fucks off to the UK, um, to pay his respects to pay his respects to the queen to stand in line and he's doing he's doing like news interviews from the from the queue right and and you could tell i think it was an interview on global or ctv but you could tell the host was like really uh uh like practically laughing at him right like what what are you doing here and kenny was like well um you know i'm doing my job as premier, but I thought um, I should pay my respects to the queen because it's like losing a relative, right? And then um, in terms with the Vatican, um, so when in his first year at, uh, at uh, uh, University of San Francisco, um, which, is a, which is a private uh, Catholic university, right? Uh, San Francisco State is the, is the public one. Um, he writes this op-ed uh, in the student paper there, the Foghorn, after the Pope's visit there, that as a non-Catholic, this is before he had converted, he was appalled that there are Catholics on campus people who call themselves Catholic who don't take the Vatican's teachings seriously and that this offends him as someone who's not Catholic, but admires. <laughs> just just a weirdo. I mean, yeah, he, he's just a weird guy with this like weird, you know, fundamentalist Catholicism and, and monarchism kind of animating his politics kind of underneath all his politics. And yeah, like if you were a monarchist in 2024, you are a weird fucking person. <laughs> 
And if you feel like you have a personal relationship with Queen Liz, like, yeah, you're you're a little fucked up in the head. And yeah, <laughs> Jason Kenny said that out loud to the fucking media, to the public. <laughs> and uh, just, just to even an unapologetic freak. Just an unapologetic freak. And just to even pivot into more current events, uh, King Charles, who hasn't even fucking appeared on our money yet, or nor do we have any portraits of him hanging in our public buildings, has cancer and might die soon. So, like, um, I guess maybe we're not going to have a bunch of shit named after King Charles. But, uh, fuck, I don't know. Um, all of this to say, Jason Kenny's a freak and a weirdo, and also uh, has been incredibly influential. And I, I appreciate the psychic damage that you took on to write, you know, what what is this, like a, a 400, 300... 300-page book, book about... 315 that. pages on the day. Right. Yeah. That, but that includes, like, the index and in, in footnotes. And so, yeah, yeah I think the, the, the book itself is, like, uh, I don't know, 280 pages. Yeah, there's a prologue and a foreword, which I, which I like, had pointed out. As yeah, foreword from uh, Dave Clayman Haga, who I think does a really good job... Uh, saying like explicitly with that Jason Kenny is a weirdo. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. He comes right out. I think he quotes Sean Spear. No, no, no. He doesn't quote Sean Spear, but I think he Spear, just. No, I, I I quote Sean Spear. Sean Spear would never say Kenny's a weirdo, um, <laughs> because to to a guy like Sean Spear, um, and and you know what his that that retrospective interview Kenny did with the Hub uh, after Smith was elected the leader of the UCP was very helpful because of course, Kenny wouldn't talk to me um, for this book. So that, that was helpful very much in sort of um, having uh, journalists who got access to him to, so I could get a sense of sort of what he thinks his legacy is. And um, I mean, I mean, Sean Spear, um, called him, you know, one of the most influential conservative politicians of the past 30 years. And I think that is spot on. And I mean, Sean Spear would know, right? I mean, he is a total uh, yeah. conservative insider hack. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think he was engaging in hyperbole there. And then there are other, there are other two, right? Um, uh, you know, Steve Pakin uh, had a book uh, in the early 2000s uh, called The Life where he just interviews uh, essentially like career politicians and talks about how cool they're and interesting there. And, and yeah, it is, it's, of course it's cringe, but there was some useful uh, information in there from Kenny just about his like background in life that I kind of was able to weave into the narrative. And of course, in true Pakin form, uh, Kenny, everything Kenny says, he just takes at face value and doesn't like critically interrogate it at all. But that allowed me to do so, right? Um, mm. Having that as a sort of primary source. And then, uh, you know, like Paul Wells as well, um, in his book on Harper, um, there's some good stuff from Kenny in there about his, uh, um, uh, his sort of his strategy right uh, in the harper government of sort of bringing immigrant communities into the fold um which was uh again very uh um uh, informative for my purpose um about how he he made a conscious effort to like be in 
you know, uh, sort of quote unquote ethnic media uh, to be a constant presence there um, in, in, in sort of get the message out to conservative elements in these various ethno-cultural communities that the conservative party isn't anti-immigrant, that we actually share a lot of your values. And uh, he was successful in doing that, right? Uh, I, I mean, the reason Harper got a majority um, was in large part due to Kenny's tireless efforts in these suburban uh, ridings in the GTA and Vancouver, the greater Vancouver area um, where there are lots of immigrants um, and that, and that was a big part of, 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 of the sort of, uh, Harper majority strategy because they realized, right. Mulroney's coalition, which was, uh, you know, sort of soft Quebec nationalists, um, big city, uh, business elites, and then Western Canadian populace, um, the the new conservative party right the reform and pc merger could the the quebec nationalists weren't interested in what they were selling right because their sort of uh fiscal uh conservatism this this full-throated embrace of neoliberalism even beyond what brian mulrooney was uh proposing um, didn't jibe with uh, soft Quebec nationalists. So it was like, okay, what, what, what's that third leg for our stool to stand on? And Kenny was like, immigrants, we, we need... Uh, <laughs> we need to extend the benefits of Anglo-Canadian white supremacy to a select group of anime. Immigrants in the right, 905 exactly. who, can, who can put us over the top. Right, exactly, and it worked. And I think you see Polyev doing that again. I, I, I think uh, I... Uh, you know, our uh, friend of the show, Nora Loretto, uh, interviewed me for a newsletter about the book. And she asked me, like, who is the Jason Kenny of today? And I thought that was a very good question. And I, I mean, two th the first, I think, is Melissa Lanceman. I think she's doing the work Kenny did formerly in the federal conservatives of bringing in these communities uh, that were not part of the conservative coalition before in cultivating, you know, reactionary elements, right? Because there are right-wingers in every type of community. I, I mean, with Lanceman, uh, her asset is her sort of connection to the 2SLGBTQ plus community, right? To uh, find, you know, reactionary gays um, to bring on side. But also, like... Uh, reaching out to like um, the sort of conservative Iranian uh, exile community that, uh, you know, a lot of like monarchists, but also just people who are against the, of the Shah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, and, and, uh, and yeah, so, and, and then my, my, and then I also said, I think Danielle Smith is also today's Jason Kenny, which I think some people would find controversial. But as we discussed earlier, um, uh, the worst things that she's doing are things that Jason Kenny would have done were he oh, yeah. had he survived. No, I definitely think she's picking up his mantle. And, and uh, you know, I don't have a smooth segue into this, but now that I think we have done the preamble on the book, and remember, buy the book, go buy the book. 
uh, is, you know, let's get into kind of Kenny's legacy, you know, the, the worst things that he has done as a politician. And, and just for context, you can pick anything he's ever done, federal or provincial. Uh, I've got two federal and three provincial in my fi- in my top five. I don't know. I don't know if our, fi- if our top fives are going to overlap either because we did not talk about this beforehand as as, uh, as all good podcasters should do. Um, but do you want to start? Or do you want me to go first? Uh, my number five is uh, what I uh, called shooting the messenger during the climate crisis. Um, you know, I'm, of course, talking about his uh, fight back strategy against environmentalists um, that he called for in the 2019 UCP platform. And then he did uh, two things, of course, the war room. uh and the uh, inquiry into, uh, you know, anti-Albertan environmentalists. And um, I think that that was important because as the climate crisis was becoming uh, increasingly urgent, uh, rather than uh, taking efforts to wind down oil and gas production, which is what's needed, and to advance renewable energy, he decided to dedicate a lot of resources to smearing environmentalists, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember so this quite have- clearly. I, I wrote a lot about the uh, the public inquiry, such as it was, uh, and it wasn't much of a public, it wasn't very public, nor was it an inquiry into foreign funded, what did they, what was the framing even, foreign funded environmentalists? Yeah, it was for, it was, so it was based on Vivian Krause's uh, work, which I talk about in the book. Um, I think uh, uh, Sandy Garcino at the National Observer uh, did a fantastic job just completely and thoroughly debunking it. And, um, and, and, and but in Vivian Krauss's work, of course, is uh, based on Ezra Levant's uh, earlier work uh, back during the Harper years, right? But um, before Ezra was semi cast out of polite conservative society um, talking about how the tar sands are so ethical. Therefore, anyone who opposes them is uh, unethical and is supporting Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and Iran and all these other uh, oil producers. And so Vivian Krauss sort of builds on this um and says that there's this conspiracy of American interests to target to single out the oil sands for international condemnation um, because they are the most ethical source of oil. And the insinuation there, she doesn't explicitly say it, but the insinuation there is that it's being done to actually benefit American uh, oil and gas interests. Of course, all this ignores the fact that uh, Alberta's uh, tar sands uh, produce bitumen, which is um, uniquely uh, emissions intensive to just get out of the ground, uh, let alone like refine it into crude oil. Um, But by sort of shifting the criteria for judging uh, the oil from 
like actual environmental criteria in science to this like metaphysical uh, ethical criteria, it, 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 it's able to present uh, what's clearly like an unsustainable enterprise in uh, northeastern Alberta as this this moral crusade, which is very helpful um, for Kenny. So, and, and, and I draw a contrast in the book between um, when Notley uh, and Shan Phillips uh, introduce their climate plan, right? They, 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 they have like most, right? I think four of the five yeah. uh, big oil company CEOs on stage, maybe all five, I, I, but it's in the book, um, but uh environmentalists indigenous leaders right they were trying to build this like broad coalition um between uh people who want to protect the environment and people who want to destroy it for profit right this very conciliatory approach then you fast forward to 2019 in jason kenny uh holds his press conference announcing uh the creation of the war room and you've yeah, got I mean, I mean, the inquiry and the war room you can probably put together in the same kind of bucket right of you know jason yeah. kenny's fight back strategy right but but there's uh you know he has uh vivian kraus up there he's got robbie picard from uh oil sand strong up there who, who's holding up a picture of Sipora berman with her face crossed out right and and kenny had this really like obsessive hatred of Tsipora Berman, um, who was, upon the request of uh, the oil and gas industry, um, um, placed uh, into a leadership role on the sort of oil sands advisory panel that the NDP created. Um, and I, I think Tsipora was actually probably the best interview I, I, I did for the book. Um, she was very candid and like reflective on her sort of role in all this and, and, and the backlash that she faced, mm-hmm. um, including getting um, assaulted uh, by some guy at the Edmonton airport, um, which Kenny, of course, uh, very much uh, played into. And uh, she left the NDP panel she they sort of agreed that she would step down and then kenny only amplified his attacks on her um because once she wasn't constrained by sort of sitting at the table with oil and gas industry she became more vocal in her anti-pipeline advocacy and kenny would always highlight remember this person was appointed to an ndp panel so it also got very personal with his attacks on Sipora Berman, and then of course ed whittingham that was another really extraordinary aspect of the UCP platform at the time, right? Just saying fire Ed Whittingham from the Alberta Energy Regulator, which the NDP appointed him uh, to in it lasted a few months. But anyways, my point is that the war room, of course, quickly uh, became a laughing stock. Uh, you know, I played a minor role in that story. Um, when I wrote an op-ed sort of mocking the war room and I got an email from their comms director that uh, CC'd my boss demanding uh, space in the Medicine Hat News to rebut the uh, inaccuracies in Hmm. my article, um, which uh, the 
Medicine Hat News did publish. And uh, there was no rebuttal of any inaccuracies. It was, it was actually <laughs> like really boring. In, in, in Just a bunch of boring propaganda. propaganda. But I think the funniest uh, war room mishap would probably be uh, the feud it started with Netflix over its uh, Bigfoot family movie. Um, mm. That what well, it wasn't even about the tar sands, right? It was about it was set uh, in Alaska, but it was it, it did say mean things about oil and gas, and the, the villain was an oil and gas uh, yeah. executive, essentially. So yeah, 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 yeah. In Kenny. Yeah, and, and this made international headlines. I mean, Al Jazeera did a story on it. Um, uh, Kenny just saying that calling this kids' movie like vicious and like inflammatory. Um, so that would be the highlight of the war room. And what's in- interesting is this inquiry that's then launched uh, with uh, by headed by UCP donor and accountant Steve Allen keeps getting deadline extensions. And uh, not only that, but its frames of reference keep shifting to make it more uh, broad and also less um, less specific, right? Like at first, it was like to look into this foreign funding of oh, misinformation. I believe it, it, initially yeah, it was yeah, supposed yeah. to be like, "Oh, they're telling dirty, nasty lies about our precious, beautiful oil sands," and it was like, well. You can't really have a public inquiry that like uh, starts from its premise that there's already misinformation that every yeah yeah, yeah. so they add if any to the terms yeah. um and then also steve allen comes out and he's like well actually my job isn't i'm not actually <laughs> yeah qualified to determine the veracity of environmentalist claims and and so and then it, Basically, it comes out with its report, which I believe you got a draft copy of, at least part of it. Um, and it's like, yeah, I mean, everything's above board. Like, environmentalists yeah, the, are... Some money. They did get some money over the years. Not nearly the, like, billions of dollars that, that Kenny and the UCP claimed, or Vivian Krauss, let alone... And then, you know, it didn't really matter what the report said, right? The report was just an excuse for, you know, Jason Kenney and Sonia Savage, the energy minister at the time, to declare victory and run and be like, oh, yeah, well, it, it said that money went to them. And, uh, you know, we think they're bad. And um, case closed, everyone. And then, you know, it, it kind of became this ongoing kind of open sore. And I think they were finally, kindly, I think they were happy when it finally ended because, you know, this guy that they had, you know, kind of haplessly appointed to this role to kind of, you know, really pin down and, and create, you know, propaganda for why in foreign funded environmentalists were bad and were doing bad things. And all of this money was flowing to them to yeah, do bad but, things. But like, also a, a real funny part about that, I believe it was Lisa Johnson at the Edmonton Journal reported that the inquiry report itself um, went after the war room. Instead, it like it, it's done more harm than good. It did um, have some mild criticism of the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, which was. was which was <laughs> delightful. Um, but as, as you said, I, 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 I mean, it's easy to sort of dismiss the the outcome of both the war room and in the inquiry as uh, um, 
you know, a, a, a flop, a blunder, a nothing burger. But I think as Sandy Garasino uh, quite aptly noted in a very, a very powerful piece she wrote once the inquiry came out, that the purpose wasn't actually to find anything or dispute any factual errors. It was to target environmentalists or politicians who were more climate conscious than the UCP, which is low bar, um, for um, opprobrium, right? To drag their names through the mud and cast this shroud of suspicion over their activities. And in, 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 in if you look at it in that respect, it wasn't the failure that I think it's easy to dismiss it as, right? If, if, if you don't accept uh, the purpose behind this fight back strategy at face value and you look at the actual like function it served, right? And so that's why I think it's one of the worst things Jason Kenney did. There you go. Number five on your list, though it's funny that it's always funny when you kind of ask someone to kind of come up with a list, you know, how you organize it. I mean, mine, mine is in no particular order. And in fact, if I were to kind of tell you how it's organized, it's kind of like my first two are kind of Jason Kenney as a federal politician stuff. And my my final three are are uh, Jason Kenney as a provincial, as a premier. But the first one on my list of top Kenny of Jason Kenney's top five worst, most terrible things is um, something we're still kind of largely living with today and something that people who want to become citizens of Canada still have to contend with, which is uh, when he was immigration minister under Stephen Harper, he, with the help of his kind of loyal toady, Chris Champion, rewrote the the citizenship guide. Ah, yes. And you cover this uh, kind of extensively, you know, early on in the book. And, you know, this is, this is the citizenship guide is essentially the, the guide you give to people who have come to Canada, who are trying to become citizens. Essentially, you have to be, you have to take a test in, in order to kind of become Canadian. And you have, this is the study guide that you must use in order to kind of like take the test and eventually become Canadian. And, and Jason Kenney, with the help of kind of Chris Champion, this, uh, what does he identify as? He's not really an academic. He's kind of like a would you say Chris Champion is, is an academic chairman? Well, according to the UCP, he is a respected academic and military veteran. Mm, that very, really, very, yeah. very relevant that he's a military veteran. <laughs> Are you saying you don't support the troops, Duncan? Uh, I don't support Chris Champion. Um, but essentially, Chris Champion and Jason Kenney came in and redefined kind of what it meant to be Canadian to a whole bunch of people who were trying to live and become Canadian. And, you know, the guy became this kind of highly nationalistic document, you know, glorifying the military, highlighting the, uh, quote, enormity of sacrifices made by our men and women in uniform. Uh, you know, Jason Kenney said this was far more important for people to learn than learning that, like, potash is an important industry in Saskatchewan or whatever. Um you know, Kenny's monarchism, which is something we've already touched on, kind of shown through the document. Uh, you've, you've got a quote here from the Monarchist League of Canada chairman telling them he was thrilled with the prominent placement given to the crown in the updated guide. Um, you know, he, he essentially got to, like, rewrite this document that 
people have to read and he just got to turn it into this like all the same shit that he's obsessed with he just got it essentially stuffed in there right Um, and that's a big part of what um so the this notion of kennyism i didn't coin that that was john carlaw this um uh he wrote his phd at york university actually about jason kenny's time as the uh minister of citizenship and immigration sort of formulated this uh uh, ideology of Kennyism uh, based on that, that I um, sort of took and expanded on a bit, but it, he, he calls this neoconservative multiculturalism, right? That this is a good example of that, where the sort of r- rhetoric of diversity and multiculturalism is embraced, but it's done so in a way that is very much ideologically driven. So it doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, um, as long as you accept uh, certain ideological precepts, which are are really reflected in this uh, in, in the citizenship guide, which is still the citizenship guide, right? Yeah, it's only been um, lightly updated, right? Like, I don't think it's really seen a significant rewrite since. Well, uh, well, well, they updated it because a, a big controversy uh, at the time was the fact that it didn't include anything about LGBTQ rights in the mm-hmm. document in Canada. He left that out. Um, except when they were talking about a uh, an Olympic swimmer whose name I I, I can't remember. Mark Tewksbury. He came he came to speak to my elementary school class. I remember Mark. Tewksbury. Yeah, they mentioned that he is like an LGBTQ uh, icon in Canada, but that was it. And so they updated that to note that like gay marriage is legal in Canada, despite the best efforts of Kenny and um, the Conservative Party, most of the Conservative Party. Um, and, uh, yeah, it became this, uh, you know, hyper nationalist militaristic document that is very much reflective of neoconservative ideology, which in contrast with neoliberalism is this embrace of, uh, uh, of, of sort of nationalism in tradition and military might and uh, a much more sort of collectivist um, philosophy than neoliberalism. And it's used sort of often by, because most neoconservatives are neoliberal in terms of economic policy as Jason Kenney is, but it's sort of used to give shape to the chaos created out of uh, neoliberalism dismantling all our social structures. Um, and so immigrants, again, we're, we're uh, under Kenny, we're welcome to come to Canada. Uh, in fact, immigration increased under Harper. But the criteria under which immigrants were selected to come to Canada were restructured to make it more about um, what can you do for us, right? What what jobs mm. can you fill? What um, education level do you have? Can you speak English and French, right? And that was another aspect. And so this was also used 
to again as, as part of um recruiting sort of higher status immigrants who are more educated, more proficient in English or French, right? By making this um, the citizenship guide uh, much more m- much more difficult for people who are new to this country and ensuring that those people who pass the test would be indoctrinated already into this uh, neoconservative vision of what it means to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. And this, the last bit on the citizenship guide is that it, it, the, the, this Chris Champion, Jason Kenny collab was also the first real instance of um, barbaric cultural practices kind of entering the cultural and conservative lexicon specifically. Uh, you know, there was a section there about how, you know, Canada's tolerant, but we're not you know, if you, if you do shit that we don't like, like, we don't like that. Um, and like, this was on the page that mentioned kind of barbaric cultural practices. There was a picture of a woman in a hijab, which is just an absolute racist dog whistle. But, uh, you know, th- that's all for me. That's my first one. What's your second? Yeah. And just one more thing on that. Um, um, this was something that, that, that Kenny and champion uh, fought with bureaucrats over right, who were sort of uneasy about making it this hyper-political document. And, and the bureaucrats just totally caved, right? The, they, they, they let Chris Champion write a draft of the guide, which was unheard of um, at the time, letting a political staffer actually write this document that's supposed to be done by bureaucrats. But um, Kenny and Champion were so... Um, insistent that it be this way the 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 sort of bureaucracy as um griffiths griffith andrew griffith yeah andrew griffiths yeah and these this kind of weak need bureaucrat just totally rolled over when it came to Canada. yeah yeah, yeah totally and, and and that also i think you can tie to the curriculum which as you exposed um one of several scoops of yours that i uh cite in the book was probably written by Chris Champion. Mm-hmm. Well, just you wait. The you might Chris be surprised by a further uh, best, uh, worst thing ever. So what's uh, what's your next worst thing ever? Uh, my next worst... So I actually did the, the opposite of you in that my first three are him as premier and then my top two are him as, as, as uh, cabinet minister. Um, in the federal government. Uh, but my number four is the best summer ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This was on my list too. I'm glad you got it in there. Is, yours. Is, is it higher on your list? It's the, I don't have it ranked, but it's, I'm fine to just have some crossover. We can both talk about it. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. So best summer ever, basically in early 2021, you really see the fractures in the UCP uh, develop along essentially urban and rural lines about how to address the pandemic with the rural caucus saying that we shouldn't do anything, right? Late 2020, Kenny, which was the debt, right? The second wave of COVID was the deadliest uh, in Alberta, Um 
And because of that, Kenny was dragged kicking and screaming to impose these restrictions, which didn't make any sense, right? This was when you could, you couldn't hang out with like a friend outside, outdoors, but you could go with them to the mall, which was opened <laughs> yeah. at reduced capacity. It's unclear who was enforcing this capacity restriction, but it was just this mishmash of, of restrictions and exceptions that didn't make any sense. Um, and they started uh, reopening in 2021, a phased reopening, right? Based on hospitalizations. And then I believe they get to phase three and hospitalizations go up. And so they halt the, the phased reopening and go back to what the restrictions were at the beginning of the year. And uh, this is what precipitated this backlash, right? The Rural Caucus writes a letter to Kenny saying there should be no restrictions. Drew Barnes is going around saying that the restrictions are uh, killing as many people as COVID. It, but, but at this point, Kenny's like, okay, they have a right free speech. They can say whatever they want, but, but we're doing this. This is our like responsible approach, right? He, um, um, right. He, he used this phrase responsible freedom, right? That he was urging everyone to exercise. This also came as, um, the, um, while he had banned travel, um, in late 2020, um, as a result of like skyrocketing COVID cases, uh, some of his cabinet ministers and his advisor uh, were um, were caught going on vacation, right? If you remember Aloha Gate, um, that also again pissed everyone off because the people who were against restrictions were saying you're not even abiding by them or your caucus isn't even abiding by them. And then people who supported restrictions was like, also your caucus isn't abiding by them. These need to apply to everyone. And so yeah. basically, um, and then in, 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 in spring 2021, while there were still lockdowns, there was this uh, rodeo rural Alberta, this anti-lockdown rodeo, I believe in Bowdoin, was it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And rural central Alberta, there's, there, there was this anti-lockdown rodeo and Kenny was just like, this is a slap in the face to Albertans um, who are doing their best to, you know, keep the virus at bay. Meanwhile, like weeks earlier, he was saying that, yeah, I mean, COVID's just a flu. It's not a huge deal. And so there's this mixed message. Anyways, he needed a W is the point. And so he put all his chips he went all in on if 70% of the population gets their first dose of the vaccine, they're going to get rid of all restrictions in time for Canada Day and Calgary State. The for Stampede too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because it was canceled in 2020 for the first time in like 100 years. Um, and uh, he went all in on this. Uh, 
at Stampede, he was confronted, right? The sort of anti-lockdown movement then shifted from being anti-lockdown to anti-vax because Kenny was telling people to get vaccinated. He got vaccinated himself and uh, did a whole press event about it. And the UCP started selling uh, Best Summer Ever, Alberta 2021, baseball caps on its website. I believe Medical Jim has ex- one, dude, by the way. Oh, does he? I think so. He paid for one? I believe so, yeah. I mean, uh, whatever. I have just a MAGA just, hat. It's, it's just, cool. a, just a timeless just a timeless souvenir from, from from the best summer ever. But you're, you're yeah, I mean, I think we're all remembering the same thing here, which is Jason Kenny goes all in. He says, we're going to get that. We're going to have the best summer ever, folks. COVID's finally over. Some arbitrary. Yeah, Delta variant, whatever. Not a big deal. Uh, it's only going to affect uh, old people who are going to die anyways, right? Um, mm-hmm. That sort of... Uh, so he, he goes from being dragged, kicking, screaming to impose basic restrictions that are totally contradictory and make no sense to just letting it fly. And doctors said, don't do this, right? Throughout the pandemic, doctors were saying, no, 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 we need like a two week circuit breaker lockdown and then we can talk about reopening. But we need to, um, we need to directly address transmission that's happening. Um, And they noted that BC and Ontario both also had phased um, approaches towards reopening that were based on vaccination rates, but they were going a lot slower, right? They weren't, the end point wasn't the summer, it was the fall. And they were also not just looking at the first dose of the vaccine, but how many people had gotten both doses, right? Mm-hmm. Kenny didn't do that. Um, so mid-August, as predicted, Alberta's intensive care unit start uh setting records uh, from the um, even exceeding that in those that occurred in the second wave, which was the deadliest. Um, The Delta wave was in effect. And at this point, Kenny decides to go on a three week vacation. Yeah. He just pieces out, right? Right. He, and, and we still don't know where he went. I couldn't find out. Again, there's a lot I've heard, of I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors. Yeah, that he, like, I have two, but I wasn't gonna publish them. Anymore. Yeah, like he ended up in like somewhere in Europe with his buddy David Knightleg, and I don't know. But I never was never able to kind of nail that down either. Yeah, but emissions keep climbing. Uh, on early September, he comes back and uh, does a Facebook live, shows up. And just says, all right, everyone, just be responsible, right? Personal responsibility. That's what's going to get us through this. Just even though you can go wherever you want, maybe you shouldn't, right? Just, again, this mixed messaging. By the end of September, um, there are 257 ICU patients in a province that just has 246 ICU beds. Uh, Dr. Verna Yu... Uh, who is then the CEO of AHS, uh, um, said that the only reason that uh, ICUs aren't uh, completely like overrun with patients is that people are dying, 
right? Um, I know Dr. Elon Schwartz, who at the time was a, a physician at the University of Alberta, uh, said, told the New York Times, right? This made international news that the Alberta healthcare system has collapsed. It's not about risk of collapsing anymore. It is has collapsed. And so during this wave- And it's still, it's still collapsing, folks. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it's a process, right? And, and and we're dealing with the consequences as a result of that. And Smith is used as an opportunity to dismantle AHS. So while the second COVID wave killed the most people in Alberta, I think the bet open for summer wave, which killed yeah. the second most people, um, caused the long the, the 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 largest chaos in the healthcare system with ramifications um in in clear ramifications in the present uh right danielle smith is using that as a pretext to just dismantle ahs and um sell off as much of it as she can get away with yeah. Um, starting with the parts that are already largely privatized, like uh, continuing care and, of course, mental health and addictions, um, the latter, which I will get to shortly. Well, Best Summer Ever is, yeah, was kind of my catch all for, you know, Jason Kenney's bungled COVID-19 response. And it's, it's hard to think of kind of a worse politician and a politician who performed worse than Jason Kenney kind of during covid given the kind of contradictory things that he did and his decisions that he made. And yeah, you know, best summer ever had the catchier tagline uh, as a, as a catastrophe, but like, you know, it was, it was, it was only the, the it was only the, the second biggest wave of deaths from COVID-19, as you're saying that the first wave really did kill the most people, but it's uh you know, it, second, it makes sense that we both the second wave. But yes, the second wave killed the most people, right? And it, it does make sense that we both had this on our list. Like, this is kind of one of his kind of indelible legacies is just like how many people he killed due to his kind of public health decisions and how much harm was done to the healthcare system that we are, again, still living with, that we still have not recovered from. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense. For my, uh, my second one, I don't know. I don't know where we're at. It doesn't really matter. And we're going to have to kind of hurry this up as well, Jeremy, as we get closer to the ends of our list. Uh, is, you know, I'm going to go back to Chris Champion and the harm that Jason Kenney and Chris Champion did by introducing the uh, the new social studies curriculum, K-6 to social studies curriculum. Uh, you know, you write about this extensively in the book. You cite some of the work that uh, I and, and many other journalists did kind of digging into this file. But yeah, Chris Champion shows up again and Jason Kenney tapped him on the soldier to essentially write the entire K to six social studies curriculum. And uh, to no one's surprise, it's absolute white supremacist, you know, monarchist, military, filleting dog shit. And mm -hmm. uh, there is a huge backlash from teachers and from parents. Chris Champion is, you know, uh, his, he's, he's minimized. He's, he's, there, there's this attempt to kind of minimize the work that he did and how influential he was in the creation of this curriculum. But, you know, as, you know, my FOIP, my Freedom of Information request showed and some of my reporting showed, like, he was integral to the writing of this social studies curriculum. And um, it is just, again, like, you know, the, the UCP kind of seeing the outcry 
did walk back some kind of some of the worst stuff, but it's, this guy still essentially wrote the K to six fucking social studies curriculum. And yeah, it sucks. And I, I put it up there with one of the worst things that Kenny's ever done. Just maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little biased because, you know, I have a kid who's in grade one, but you know, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. No, it absolutely is. And I think in, in, in the chapter where I discuss it, where I discuss Kenny's approach to education writ large, I spend uh, 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 like half the chapter just talking about the social studies curriculum in particular, but place it in the context of like the broader chaos Kenny was sowing in the public education system at the time, right? And in, 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 in and, and that was a part of it, right? I mean, first thing uh, Lagrange did was rip up the NDP's agreement with the teachers' association that um, declared them an equal partner in developing curriculum, right? Saying no, 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 they're just one of many stakeholders. We need to consult other people too, um, and 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 so it. It also needs to be viewed as an attack on uh, labor rights for teachers, I think. And also, um, when you see this expansion of charter schools and just in my view, and and I think I observed this when it was happening, that I think the purpose was, again, to just create disarray in the public school system and essentially to leave I, I right i mean the curriculum ended up getting put on ice and now apparently it's going to come back this year and and uh i i lord knows what um it's gonna look like i think it will probably be less um egregious but um will probably um, have a lot of the same problems as 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 the original did, and then the UCP can just say, "Look, we've we've been over this so many times. Let's just pass it. We need our students to be like learning and modern curriculum." But it it but having such a shoddy curriculum, it really downloads responsibility for 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 how to teach. And having such an outdated curriculum when it was put on ice sort of downloaded responsibility onto individual teachers to figure out how to teach social studies to kids. And uh, when you get to that point, then one type of education, whether it's private or charter or public, isn't necessarily better than the other. And it sort of breaks down these distinctions between uh, public and private education that you saw uh, the UCP doing under Kenny. Right? Yeah, I mean, um, Jason Kenny just has an active antipathy towards public goods, towards public education in general. Mm-hmm. And the end result of this, all the chaos caused by charter schools, by this curriculum thing, it, it's just a plus for him and his political project, right? Like, the less able, like, if he's able to make public schools dysfunctional, great. You know, he's he's a happy man, and he's able to go to, you know, him and his, himself and his supporters and say, I did good. Uh, and, you know, he just largely, I mean, all the signs were there, right? Like, I remember all of the, like, same people who were banging on about trans kids these days were saying psychotic things about, 
um, you know, the curriculum that the NDP were bringing in themselves. You know, I think Jason Kenney was worried that, like, he said in some rally that, you know, pretty soon they won't call themselves girl or boy, but they'll be calling each other comrade or whatever. And, like, he would just make up stupid shit like that all the time. <laughs> um, which is awesome. Which is awesome, yes. Yeah, Gender exactly. It was this... Yeah. And again, it was this secretive rewrite um, created by NDP ideologues, even though they were simply continuing the very middle of the road approach of uh, the Stelmac era PCs. Um, and, and it wasn't without its flaws, the NDP curriculum, but it, it was something that had Kenny actually been interested in taking a constructive approach to education, he could have consulted with experts to fix rather than uh, to create this curriculum advisory panel with no active teachers on it to, uh, you know, turn kids into um, honest used car salespeople. Jason Kenney's relationship to public education is just tortured, right? Like he, he wants to be able to you know, have a workforce that is educated, able to follow instructions and a manual and kind of make widgets and follow orders. But, you know, you don't want to have them too educated. You, you teach them to read too much. And, you know, then they start learning about, you know, things that they shouldn't be learning about. <laughs> That's the thing with, with uh, why there is such an active antipathy towards public education from the conservative political movement, right? Yeah, and but I think Kenny's vision of education is uh, uh, one that's two-tiered. So you have the masses in these increasingly overcrowded, under-resourced public schools that are just being taught, um, right, to how to be honest used car salespeople. And then you have the privileged um, families sending their kids to these specialized charter schools where they can be taught to sort of follow their their dreams, right? And then it, with post-secondary, which I um, have at the end, which, I mean, the cuts to post-secondary education under uh, the first few years of Kenny were, I mean, were massive, right? Especially for uh, arts-focused schools like the U of A. And of course, the cuts meant tuition had to go up. Um, and so then it also post-secondary education becomes something that elites, that is only attainable by elites who are can be trusted to learn about uh, history and, 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 you know, the great works of, 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 of West, the Western canon, which Kenny studied at um, the University of San Francisco, but never finished his degree. Um, whereas... Yeah, white, statue, uh, white statue history, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then, um, you know, trade school, um, became more accessible. Yes, a, there right? was a huge so, there was a huge focus under Kenny uh, of of you know trades education and getting kids into getting kids and as many kids as possible into trades education, beefing up that part of the education system. Uh, I mean that's I mean we could go on and on about education. We've we've written a lot about it. But uh, what's your what's your next one? 
uh, is dismantling harm reduction services during the drug poisoning crisis. Uh, That's right? on my list too. Great minds think yeah. like. I mean, yeah, I, I think it was the most, right. I mean, we talk about uh, Kenny's policies leading to mass death during COVID. And, and, and of course they did. But it's a lot harder to attribute all those deaths to him, to his his policies during COVID, right? Because people were going to die of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. But his his policies exacerbated the amount of people who died. But the drug poisoning crisis, I mean, every single one of these deaths could have been prevented if entirely avoidable, yeah, harm reduction infrastructure, right? And there was a report that came out from uh, Tara Moriarty at U of T that looked at excess deaths in Alberta during the pandemic and or during the first two years of the pandemic. And it found that um, Alberta had about 10,000 excess deaths. So that's the amount of deaths more than you would expect in a typical year based on uh, mortality rates. And the interesting part of Moriarty's finding was that it was, yes, the pandemic, of course, was part of that, but it was also the drug poisoning crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, really went into overdrive when the pandemic started. But Kenny laid the groundwork for these mass opioid overdoses by whittling away at Alberta's already minimal harm reduction infrastructure in his early days in office. Of course, there was closing down arches in Lethbridge um, based on allegations of financial uh, mismanagement, which were real, but they also uh, suggested that this was criminal, that, that that Arches was engaging in fraud. And the Lethbridge police investigated it. They ended up accounting for the money that was missing. But by then, Kenny had already made his decision, no, we're closing it down. And that was the most uh, frequented supervised consumption site in North America because it was the one site in a city of 100,000 people and the First Nations reserves surrounding it and rural areas as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, he sowed chaos in, in, in that uh, sector. Um, also, uh, right, SafeWorks, uh, mm -hmm. the one supervised consumption site in Calgary, a city of 1.5 million people, located in the heart of downtown he announced plans to close it down and relocated it relocate it to two more bare bones uh overdose prevention sites elsewhere in the city we still don't know um where those are going to be and in uh, safe Works is still open right but there's that cloud of uncertainty hanging over it and, but but most importantly while he is reducing resources for existing harm reduction infrastructure, he's also introducing this recovery-oriented system of care, which I did some yes. reporting on for you. This is actually yeah, the, the first chapter I wrote for the book. 
um, I, I wrote for my proposal just because I had written at length about it um, before. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, the, the recovery racket, we were, we were really the kind of first outlet to kind of get into detail and, and make those connections with like what this, what a recovery oriented system of care such I fucking hate that uh, kind of term turn of phrase, but what the recovery racket kind of looked like in practicality, right? Like one, the, the, you know, they were going to always going to overblow the numbers of how many beds they were creating, how many people were actually going to be able to get treatment. Cause you still can't really get treatment in Alberta if you really want it. Uh, and two, they were going to vastly overblow how effective getting people into treatment would, what it would mean to the, to the opioid um, kind of, or the drug poisoning crisis. And this kind of cynical weaponization of recovery as <clears throat> the solution, the only solution to the drug poisoning crisis over everything else to the detriment of harm reduction, as you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, just this policy of, of just fun shoving, shoveling cash towards these private abstinence only recovery clinics um, at the expense of uh, harm reduction resources was um really reflective of again this neoconservative moralism that 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 Jason Kenney uh was such a staunch proponent of right that the 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 problem isn't in the increasingly toxic drug supply it's actually the choices individuals are making to use drugs and they need to be prevented from doing that. And so on the campaign trail, it's interesting uh, because Kenny was just taking this hard edged law and order position that we, we can't help people, right? Inject poison into themselves. He said, we need to, um, we need to cut off the drug supply, not tinker with it. And we need to start arresting people. We need the federal government needs to be harder on China where fentanyl is being manufactured and all this. Then he takes, and, and I think this is uh, really in uh, strategically smart approach is that he, through this recovery oriented system of care, he's able to put this compassionate face on the same old drug war policies that instead of just sending cops to bust people, which there's plenty of, it's no, we're going to give them the opportunity to start fresh, which is in itself good. Like recovery should be more accessible. It's good that uh, Kenny waived fees for um, recovery, but the approach, this rigid approach of abstinence only, this increasing integration of that recovery-oriented system of care into the law enforcement system, right? Making it so that cops, that you have the option upon being arrested for a drug charge of just going to rehab, um, really reveals that this is the same old um law and order drug war failed policy, but with a more compassionate veneer. And you've seen Danielle Smith, again, take it to its ultimate conclusion with her impending legislation 
to allow um, unhoused people to be forced into recovery, even though all evidence indicates that that will just lead to increased overdoses. Because if you're being forced into recovery, you're much more likely to relapse when you're out because it has to be something you want to do. And um, also Polyev, of course, has been really quiet about it since um, our uh, drug poisoning numbers have now reached uh, previously unforeseen highs. But in the few months where they had been lower, he was talking about how this is the approach. There there was like two months of fucking like slightly lower than, not even pre-COVID, just like lower than the year before deaths. Like still really, really high fucking deaths. Yeah, and Mike Ellis and Kenny and the UCP were fucking taking victory laps, saying, "Oh, our recovery-oriented system of care is working," and it's like, "Shut the fuck up!" No, one, no, it's not. And two, yes, this year or the past year, twenty twenty-three, we will have the highest amount of deaths from drug poisoning ever. Your recovery-oriented system of care is not working. More people are dying, and you can talk about it, which which is really what the kind of recovery-oriented system of care the recovery racket system is it's it's a public relations strategy it's it's not meaningful public health it's not a meaningful um approach to the drug poisoning crisis it's a way for conservatives to point at something and say look what we're doing we're doing something we're doing something to address this huge problem that a lot of people have are struggling with and that are that you know have has affected tens of thousands of families um you know who have like the the absolute the numbers on drug poisoning are insane of the people affected by it of family members and friends who have died and again you know as i said off the top when it came to this part like every one of these deaths is a preventable death you know with covid you know some people were going to get covid some people were going to die there was a novel virus there was a lot that was unknown but when it comes to drug poisoning there are solutions. There is simply just no, the police and the politicians are simply not interested in pursuing them. And that this recovery racket bullshit is just a, it's a, it's a way to kind of like hold up a shiny object in front of everyone and say, look, this is what we're doing. Um, Jeremy, we are going long, so I'm going to have to cut you off. So my last one is I'll just, and I'll keep it short. It's just, it's a, it's not even, uh, it's just a kind of emblematic of just what a racist piece of shit Kenny is, but it's when he was immigration minister when he was putting up billboards in Hungary telling Roma refugees, so these are people who were fleeing far-right neo-Nazis who were coming to Canada as refugees, telling those people, telling those Roma folks not to come to Canada. Just an incredibly vicious and racist thing to do against, again, one of the kind of most marginalized, most vulnerable groups in Hungary. Uh, you know, just an absolute dirtbag racist thing to do. And I always think about it whenever I think of just like some of the straight up most evil shit that Kenny has done. That's up there. Uh, what about you? What's uh, what's your last one or last two? Well, Kenny? well, that that was my number two, though. It could uh, um, and my number one is is related to um, the uh, refugee file. But just briefly, if I could give some background on on, on the Roma billboards. Um, so while Kenny was, again, bringing in more immigrants, but ones that were seen as useful to his larger political project, um, he was making it harder for refugees to settle in Canada, um, 
using rhetoric like bogus refugees and queue jumpers while he was actually bringing people in, in, in certain fields of work to the front of the queue, um, right? Like IT workers and uh, physicians and people who work in the oil sands and uh, these upwardly mobile people. But when it came to refugees, um, he made it harder um, to seek asylum in Canada, particularly uh, for refugees or refugee claimants from Can countries with which Canada was aligned geopolitically. So once Harper had his majority government, they passed legislation giving Kenny the power to declare certain countries as uh, designated safe countries whose asylum seekers from these countries would then get one chance at the Immigration Refugee Board. If they lost, they would be deported. There would be no appeal process within the immigration refugee system. They could appeal to federal court, but they would have to leave the country in that time. One of two of the countries listed were Czechia and Hungary, which have significant Roma populations fleeing, as you mentioned, neo-Nazi violence. And uh, another country was Mexico, where people um, there were documented instances of people being oh, deported. Man, the, the details on the on the fucking Mexico families were just fucking heartbreaking. So brutal. Yeah. And, 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 um, so on the one hand, he was, these were countries he was waiving visas for, for people to, uh, um, come visit from and maybe begin the process of immigrating from. But then if you're a refugee, if you're seeking asylum, he sought to make it harder for people to do so. So these billboards in Hungary boasted of how, if you want to come to Canada, you better make sure you have a good case because we will deport you swiftly if, if you don't. And now often what Kenny and other neoconservative ideologues refer to as bogus refugees or people who are cheating the system are people who were rejected on a technicality. Right. They didn't have their uh, uh, papers totally in order or, um, you know, someone didn't show up to testify. These types of things that happen all the time. Um, and so, um, of course, the solution would be to give the IRB more resources. But instead, it was no, we're cutting these people off, which leads me to my number one worst thing Kenny did, and I think it's pretty interchangeable with number two in terms of where I would place it, is cutting health care for refugees, um, mm -hmm. or refugee claimants, rather. Um, so he cut $100 million in extended health care benefits for refugee claimants. Uh, so things like, like obviously, basic health care um, refugee claimants get and they continue to get after Kenny cut funding. Those things like dental care, eye care, and prescription drug coverage, which Kenny 
rationalized by saying, why are these people who may not even be legitimate refugees getting better health care coverage than most Canadians? And, and this is a classic uh, uh, Kenyism is, right, and he would do the same for in his early Canadian Taxpayer Federation days, talking about politicians' pensions, right? He got the MLA pension in Alberta, like, totally um, eliminated by Ralph Klein um, by saying, mm-hmm. like, look how generous politicians' benefits are compared to average working class people. And it's like, yeah, average working class people should have better benefits. But, um, of course, when you're advocating uh, harsh austerity, then that's just a pretext to cut everyone's benefits, right? And which he freely admitted um, um, in an interview with his friend uh, Ken White, uh, who was at the Globe and Mail at the time, was the founding uh, editor of National Post, I believe. Um, but so you see this pitting the broader population uh, including like established immigrant communities against refugee claimants, some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And this forced physicians to absorb the costs of providing care that was often life-saving to refugee claimants. Um, but others, of course, weren't as fortunate if they didn't have a physician who um, um, decided to take a hit to their pocketbook to provide this care. And there were also, because the policy was so convoluted and it had sort of an arbitrary cutoff date, there were refugee claimants who weren't getting extended health care when they were still eligible for it because they were under the impression and their physician was under the impression that was over. Now, these were the two, I would say, most draconian policies the, the the designated uh, safe country list and mm-hmm. the um, cutting uh, health benefits for refugee claimants. They were also the two that were deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court and were thus um, reversed by Trudeau when he came to power. But the infrastructure there, this 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 system that welcomes refugees, uh, sorry, that welcomes immigrants with open arms if they are a valuable unit of economic growth. This increasing uh, reliance on temporary foreign workers and and, 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 um, vigilantly um, ensuring that they don't overstay the terms of their contract or work elsewhere. And the ability also to declare someone at the cabinet level a um, risk to public safety and have the RCMP uh, incarcerate them without charges that infrastructure is still in place under Trudeau. He just sanded the rough edges off of um, what Kenny and Harper did that the Supreme Court said they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we're through our lists. Um, Jeremy, 
this brings us the uh, to the end of our time together. What's the uh, the best way that people can find the book? Can you tell people about uh, any kind of book book signings and launch events that are coming up that people all across yes. the world can get to? Okay, well, uh, if you're listening on February the 6th, tonight I'm doing my official book launch with uh, Graham Thompson. We're going to be talking about uh, Jason Kenney's enduring political legacy at the Aviary. Um, the event is also going to be emceed by Colin Gallant of Taproot Edmonton. Uh, not the Colin Gallant I used to work with at Medicine Hat News. There are two journalists, Colin Gallants in, Colin Gallants in Alberta. Um, I'm also going to be doing a signing at Audrey's Bookstore on Jasper Avenue, downtown Edmonton, on the 11th, uh, which is a free event. The official book launch uh, tickets are $20 in advance, $25 at the door and comes with a copy of the book that I will, of course, sign for you after the formal event has concluded. Um, I'm also going to be in Calgary on February 13th to launch the book there at Mount Royal University in conversation with Professor uh, Roberta Lexier. And I'm going to be in Lethbridge February 15th for an event with the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs uh, at noon at the Senior Center there. And I'll be giving a talk followed by a Q&A. And then uh, finally, um, I will be, uh, well, actually, you know what? This hasn't been officially announced yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this here. This is going to be a progress report exclusive. February 17th, me and my pals at Team Advantage are going to be doing a live podcast recording at Highline Brewing in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood, um, which I believe is where Jason Kenny lives. Um so we're going to be doing that. The event is free. Just come on out and uh, get ready to uh, listen to me and uh, some Alberta Advantage contributors talk about uh, sort of the destruction wrought by Jason Kenney, followed by Q&A and selling books as my supplies remain and signing them. Um, and then, yeah, we're, it's at 4 PM. So we're going to do the event and then we'll, um, you know, have fun at the bar that night. Um, so if you're in Calgary, come out to that, if you can't make it to the book launch. Um, and then finally, February 20th, I am going to be speaking at the Snell auditorium at the downtown Red Deer public library. So if you're in Red Deer, come on out to that. Um, and tell your friends because I uh, um, uh, I don't know too many people in Red Deer, so uh, definitely spread the message. I'll probably have posters made that I'll put up there on my way down to Calgary uh, on the 12th. So yeah, uh, February 6th, book launch, February 11th, uh, book signing in the afternoon before the Super Bowl, uh, February 13th, Calgary book launch, February 15th, Lethbridge uh, SACPA event, February 17th, Albert Advantage live recording, and then February 20th, Red Deer 
book launch at the library. And um, for those who are in Grand Prairie, Fort Mac, and of course, Medicine Hat, where it all started for me, I will be there at some point in the near future, but I haven't arranged anything yet. So if you're in those cities and know of a good venue, uh, hit me up. There you go, folks. That's how you can get the book. That's how you can meet Jeremy, get your book signed if that's what you want. Um, thanks again to Jeremy for coming on the pod. Thanks again for listening all the way to the end. We very much appreciate you, uh, the listener. And um, if you want to join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this little independent media project going, please go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Put in your credit card. and Put in 5, 10, 15, 50, 500 a month, whatever you can afford. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks again to Jim for editing. Thank you to Cosmic Venue Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.